Well, this morning we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and as I said, we'll see how uh, far we get, but uh, I want to, I titled the, the message, The Wrong Way to Right Wrongs, <laughs> The Wrong Way to Right Wrongs. Sometimes you have symptoms of something that's a bigger problem in our lives. We see that all the time. I'm sure you've taken your car into the car dealer or the auto mechanic and said, you know, there's just a little sound I'm hearing, you know. Uh, I'm wondering if you could look at it for me. And he calls you up in a couple hours and he says, well, you know, that little squeak that you heard, uh, I got to replace the whole transmission (laughs) or I got to replace the whole motor or whatever it might be. And when a little problem actually stems from a bigger one, that's where you have to be concerned. And in this passage, what Paul is doing is he addresses a, what you might consider a squeak in the Corinthian church. Now, the Corinthian church, uh, Paul, who wrote this letter to them, um, for those of you who may be catching up and you haven't gone on the app or on the, on the website and listened to all the messages up to this point, there's, there's 31 messages ahead of this one. So you're, you're, you're playing way catch up. So you've got to go back and listen to those to get caught up. But I'll give you a, a quick summary of where we've been in the book of Corinthians. He wrote this letter because someone contacted him after he founded the church and he spent some 18 months there and then he left and turned it over to Apollos. Well, what happened was they went awry. Things started to happen in this church that concerned uh, the faithful members of the church, but it also concerned Paul once he heard about it. And it was such a concern that somebody wrote a letter to Paul saying, hey, we got some real problems here in Corinth. And so the letter was written by Paul as kind of a problem-solving letter. Don't you just love those, you know, when, when somebody sends you a problem-solving letter? And he deals with various problems, everything from the influence of human philosophy, and that resulted basically in their inability to get along as a church, deeper problems such as incest. I mean, it's hard to conceive this going on in a church. Somebody who was having sexual relations with his father's wife. Um, there was problems of pagan worship creeping into this body. All kinds of things like drunkenness. They had all kinds of problems. And, and what we find as we go through the book of 1 Corinthians is after he kind of lays it on pretty thick, the first chapter, because <laughs> he kind of butters them up for everything that follows. He tells them, boy, you're blessed. You're, I give thanks for you always, all this stuff. And then he lowers the boom on them because he has to speak firmly with them. And they had all kinds of issues going on. Well, the one problem we look at here this morning is the problem of within the church, they had members of the church who were actually suing one another in the secular courts. They were taking one another to court. Uh, They were very busy taking each other to court, and really their motives were very impure, you might say. Some believers were were taking one another to court before what Paul points out is unbelievers. But that problem was really just a symptom, a squeak of something much worse. It revealed another serious problem in their congregation. And the Corinthians neither understood nor lived faithfully the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, He was dealing with the problem of lawsuits among the brethren in this church. And he says that, Paul very clearly says in this chapter, that that kind of thing among Christians, a Christian suing another Christian, is wrong. It's sin. It's sin. And the apostle seems almost to change the subject if you've been with us in this study because in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, what were we talking about? We were talking about sexual immorality in the church. All this crazy weirdness that was going on in the Corinthian church. 
And then if you look down toward the end of chapter 6, verse 12, he begins to once again go back to the sexual immorality topic. And so you think, wow, what, what happened here? He just like put a comma and said, okay, i got to talk to you about something else. <laughs> and you think this seems kind of out of place. But it really, it really doesn't. It really doesn't. You say, well, what does this have to do with anything? See, between these two sections dealing with lust and sexual immorality, you have this, this section of lawsuits among the brethren. And you might say, well, what does that have to do with sexual immorality or lust? Well, the answer is everything. Because it's really a form of lust. It's a form of lust. Lawsuits usually, if you've ever been part of a lawsuit or you've ever uh, watched a lawsuit play out before your eyes, usually they arise out of greed. They arise out of covetousness, out of the desire to somehow obtain somebody else's material things, whether they took it from you or not, that's what it comes out of. So a lawsuit is an attempt to force another person to yield to you what you regard as your right. And it's really another form of lust. The dictionary's definition of lust is this, any obsessive craving or desire. So you can see how someone who may be greedy, someone who may be grasping and determined to hang on to his own rights, especially regarding material matters, is guilty of some form of lust, of making things more important than what? Than people. And we all have a tendency to do that sometimes. But this got to the point where they're actually taking each other to court. Now, a way of introduction, this chapter talks a lot about judgment. Um, Forms of the word judge or judgment, they appear over 600 times in the Bible. So it's not a little subject matter throughout the Scriptures. There's 177 times where it appears in the New Testament. And forms of the Greek word krino appear 228 times in the New Testament. And so it's kind of an important subject matter to understand. Krino has the idea of rendering a verdict or making a judgment. The other word there you see in your outline is to evaluate between two opposites. In other words, both people think they're right. How do you resolve it? Well, usually you work it out amongst yourselves, but these people didn't do that. What'd they do? I'm going to take you to court. Now, John 5.22 reveals that judgment has been committed to the Son. John John 5.22 says, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to who? To the Son, it says. He's given all judgment to the Son. And guess what? What are we going to do when Christ comes back? We are going to co-reign with Christ. Think about that. James 4.12 says, There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? We've heard about that. Or Hebrews chapter 10, verse 30, makes it very clear that any kind of this judgment belongs to God, whether it's God the Father or God the Son. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. Well, I want to share with you this morning, or maybe this morning and next week, we'll see how far we get here, three reasons why Christians should settle their disputes before believers and not courts, especially secular courts. This was something that was unheard of in the Jewish culture. In the Jewish culture, the first thing they did when they went to a town, if there was no synagogue there, what they would do? They would get 11 guys and they would start a synagogue. Why? Because that was the foundation of their faith. And so as the Jewish community would grow in that community, if there were issues... Hey, my neighbor's, you know, planting on my ground. Well, they don't take them to secular court. What do they do? They go to the synagogue. And both parties come to the synagogue, and they sit before the men, and they say, here's the issue, and they work it out. 
In the Jewish culture, you, you would never think back then of taking your issue to a secular court and asking them to figure it out for you. You just would never do that. It wasn't even in their thinking. And so, the first point here, believers are more competent to settle disputes between believers. I mean, that's really what the Bible tells us to do. If you have an issue with somebody, what do you do? What are you told to do? Go to that person, personally, and sit down face-to-face and work it out, because you're part of the same body of Christ. You know, that's one thing as we celebrate communion today. You know, the emphasis on being one body, one body in Christ. And when one part of the body hurts, we all hurt. When one part of the body rejoices, body rejoices, we all rejoice. Because we're one body. But see, the first point is believers are more competent to settle disputes between believers. Look at what it says there, and I'll read our, our text for us, and then we'll begin to look at verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that We are to judge angels. How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, And that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? In other words, look at the greater good here. Verse 8, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brother's. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor adulterers, idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And by the way, such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Well, the first thing we have to see here is that this situation demands it. It demands that we come before each other, not go to some secular court. That word dare there, it's it's used 16 some times. It expresses shame on their part, not boldness. It's not something that would be admonished. It's not something to say, oh, wow, you know, boy, look at what they're doing. They're being so bold in a positive way. No, this is, how dare you do this? The point is, is that it's astonishing that believers would even consider suing one another in a civil court, in a secular civil court. It just blew Paul's mind. It blew Paul's mind because he was Jewish, for one, but then also it blew Paul's mind because he was a Christian, and he realized that the body of Christ is one. We're not to cause issues with one another. It tells us here the the cause of this dispute. He says, if you have a grievance against another, a grievance, Greek, the word pragma, pragmatic, it has the idea that, you know what, there's really not a right or wrong here. There's nothing clear. It's not like you know, well, I'm going to go steal something from the store down the street. Well, that's clearly wrong. Now, these are, are more opinion-mattered things where there's no real clear issue. And there's a lot of things like that in our Christian lives. It's not clear what is right. 
because the Word of God doesn't speak to maybe that issue. But what happens is they're, they're, they're focused on this. They're unwilling to yield and say, okay, you know what, believe what you believe, I'm going to believe what I believe, let's just go our own way. No, they're making matters of opinion such a big deal, they end up in a court of law over it. The same words used over in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, where it talks about soldiers getting entangled in civil pursuits. All right, civil affairs. The issue is not about breaking the law or showing a disregard for secular authority. It, it basically means, you know, it could go either way. And you guys are going to go to court over this? Really? It's a reciprocal complaint. It says one another. The another there, when one of you has a grievance against another. It really has the idea, it's a strong difference of opinion, but both people believe they're right and the other person is wrong. And they're not willing to sit down and talk to others in the church or anybody. They run right into court. They well, we'll settle it in court. And his, his offense is really there in verse 1. Does he dare to go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? The unrighteous or the unjust. Who are they? Well, you know what? There's only two groups of people in the world, right? The righteous and the unrighteous. There's nothing in between that. Either you're forgiven of your sin through Christ or you're not. Either you're on your way to heaven or you're not. You're on your way to hell as a result of God's judgment upon your sin. God offers us the free gift of salvation through Christ. That's what we spoke of this morning. That's what communion speaks of. But the character of the unbeliever is... Someone who is unjust, unrighteous. They don't have the Holy Spirit. They don't have God's wisdom resonating in their hearts. Sometimes people will ask me, I have this issue in my life and I want to, do you know of any counselors? I'll say, well, your first and foremost visit should be to your elders or your pastor of, your, of, of the church that you attend, they should be the first place you go. No, no, I mean a counselor, like a real, oh. See, we, we fail to understand that without the Holy Spirit, non-Christians cannot give you biblical counsel. That's what biblical counseling is. It's very important to understand that distinction. There's a lot of Christians even that go to, quote, Christian counseling. And some Christian counselors, with quotes, is basically a Christian who's adopted all the wisdom of the world and put the cross on it. And said, well, we're Christians, but we're really secular counselors, but we're Christians. And so you end up in a dead end there, too, because what are they doing? They're just applying the world's wisdom in the name of Christ. And that's not going to work either. The only way to deal with the issues is when you go to what we would call a biblical counselor, someone who's willing to sit down and listen to what's going on in your life and say, okay, you know what, here's what the Bible says about that. Because as a Christian yourself, you should want to know what the Bible says, not what Freud says, or whoever else. You should want to know, what does the Bible, how does the Bible deal with this? And it's the same thing when we're dealing with lawsuits. Two parties within the church, two so-called Christians within the church, they're having a misunderstanding and they're going to run to the civil court, the secular court, the court that is just applying man's laws without any Holy Spirit, without any wisdom whatsoever? I mean, there's literally 
an unbeliever can do in that kind of a situation other than just apply the raw law to your situation without any understanding of spirituality whatsoever. Now, that's not to say that at times people get caught up into court cases or whatever business. Remember, here we're talking about two believers. We're not talking about you and your neighbor down the street who's not a Christian who decides to sue you for whatever reason. We're talking about two Bible-believing, sin-forgiven Christians within a church. And they have a disagreement, and instead of working it out with the elders of the church and amongst themselves, they go to the secular courts to do that. I mean, it wasn't that many years ago, 20-some years ago, you had a situation right here in this church with the pastor who, from what I told, would bring his attorney to him, with him in the service. That's how bad it was. I mean, I can't even conceive of that. That's what they said happened. You're looking outside of the body of Christ for wisdom that's not there. And so he says, how dare you do this? You take your situation between two believers before an unrighteous judge. That doesn't mean that the the judge is immoral. That doesn't mean that all judges are bad. We're talking about spirituality here. I mean, there are some judges that are fine, upstanding human beings and render wonderful court decisions. All I'm saying, if they're not believers, they don't have what a believer has. They don't have the Holy Spirit. They don't have biblical discernment. They don't have biblical understanding. And so they're going to just basically apply the raw law to their situation. And sometimes that goes good. Sometimes that goes bad. Very, very, very bad. We see that in our society today. Some of the court cases that are rendered, you just scratch your head thinking, what are they thinking? Well, look at what verse 2 says. Or do you not know that the saints, who are the saints? Those who have been forgiven by Christ. Those who are in Christ, the church. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? See, here's the reasons why believers are more competent to deal with issues such as this between two other believers. Because first of all, the Bible says that we're going to judge the world. Ever think of that? We are. Wow. You can look at several different passages. Matthew 19, verse 28. Jesus said to them, now these are the apostles, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now there he's obviously clearly speaking to his apostles, the disciples. But if you look at Revelation, it's mentioned several times in the book of Revelation as well. Revelation chapter 2. Verse 26, it says, The one who conquers and who keeps my words until the end, to him I will give authority over what? The nations. Over the nations. Or chapter 3, verse 21. Revelation 3, 21. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. I mean, something to look forward to, right? Or chapter 20, verse 4, says, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those 
to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the, saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Speaking of the millennium. This is what we have to look forward to. So if we're competent, what Paul's point is here is if you're going to judge the world, he says there in the next phrase, and if the world is to be judged by you believers, are you incompetent in such trivial cases? In other words, do you understand what you're, you're going to be judging with Christ and you can't even work out a little thing between the two of you? Come on. You're going to rely on some secular court to make that decision for you? You should be able to handle these trivial, the idea is just meaningless, really, concerns you have with one another. Remember, these are not things that are clearly right and wrong. These are things that are opinion-based, is the idea. Well, I think a man should be able to have hair all the way down his back. Well, I don't. I think it has to be bald. You know, I, I, I disagree with you. Well, take me to court. All right, I will. Let's see what the court says. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that was, that's how far it had gone down in the gutter in this church. They were looking for things to sue each other over. So he says, you're going to be judging the world. But then he says in verse 3, look at this. Unless you misunderstand, he says, do you not know that we are to judge angels? What? We're going to judge angels. The Bible doesn't give us a whole lot of information on this. Judging angels. Other than to say we're going to do it. Are they bad angels? Are they good angels? If they're good angels, how do they be judged? Sometimes that word judge can, can mean just kind of authority over kind of a thing. And so it may not be that we're going to be literally judging them like God would judge them. But we will be reigning co-heirs with Christ. And so he says, you know what, if you're going to be doing all this, look at what he says, how much more than matters pertaining to this life? You're telling me, as a believer, you're going to be judging the world. You're going to be future, in the future judging angels. You're going to be co-reigning with Christ, and you can't even work out these trivial little misunderstandings amongst yourself? And so he wants us clearly to see that believers are more competent to settle these kind of issues amongst ourselves. That's the first place we should go. The first place we should go. Well, secondly, he not only says that we're more competent, but he also says that we're more capable to make decisions with God's wisdom. We're more capable. Look at verse 4. So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? He wants them to understand that, you know, these, these cases, these judgments that are happening here, I mean, there's, there's a lot of things that can be legal, you might say. You're making a legal judgment, but it's not necessarily a moral judgment or an, an ethical judgment. In other words, today, in our country, the killing of an unborn baby is legal. It's legal. But does that make it right? Today, in our society, two men can enter into a homosexual marriage. They can do it legally. But does that make it moral? Does that make it right? See, some things may be right under human authority, but completely wrong under God's authority. And so you have to be able to discern and come to a conclusion of, well, whose authority are you going to listen to? 
And what Paul is saying is, you people are arguing over these stupid things, and you're hauling each other before a secular court, arguing, fighting. What do you think that does in their mind as a picture of the church that's called to be one in Christ? And here you are fighting each other in secular courts. So sad. It taints the testimony of Christ. It hinders the effectiveness, probably, of that congregation to have any authority to speak out on the power for God to forgive and change and transform. I mean, the world's going to look at a church like that and go, you guys are fighting amongst yourselves. You're suing each other and coming to civic court, civil court because you can't even work it out, and yet you want us to believe in this kind of God? I don't think so. So these, these disputes were, were silly. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 23, you know what, it may be lawful for me to do something, right? But I may not do it because it may not be edifying to those who are around me. I mean, you may be right in your disagreement with your brother or sister. But that doesn't mean you take them to the mat. <laughs> Sometimes you just got to offer grace. You just got to say, you know what, there's no skin on my back. You want to believe that, go ahead. I totally disagree with you, but whatever. We're one in Christ. Now, that's not on the essentials of our faith. I'll go to the mat every time if someone tells me I don't believe that Jesus is God. Well, that's, that's an essential. Or I don't believe the Bible is the word of God. That's an essential. Or I don't believe God has the power to create. That's an essential. But if someone comes up to me and says, you know, I don't think that Christians should ever, ever drink any alcohol at all. I would say, well, chapter, verse. (laughs) Where do you see that? Where do you see that? It says don't get drunk. If you're drinking alcohol and you're getting drunk, that's a clear, obvious sin. Or if you're drinking alcohol because you cannot go without alcohol, then you have an addiction problem. And in no way am I putting a stamp of approval on drinking alcohol. I've seen what it's done in my own family. And it's not good. (laughs) So if you go down that that road, that's, that's your problem. But what my point is this. Is that something that is within the realm of a non-essential? It's a non-essential. Same thing with the length of somebody's hair. It's a non-essential. Now, there may be preferences that you have. You know, I mean, one of the reasons I don't like to partake of alcohol is just for my testimony's sake. And I know what it's done to my family. And that would be of concern to me. So you have to be aware of those things. But I'm not going to take somebody to the mat over it. Well, he also says here, not just the nature of these disputes, but he talks about the need of wisdom. The need for wisdom. He says, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I mean, they don't have the Holy Spirit. They don't have the Word of God. They don't have any fellowship with you. They're in the darkness, and you're going to go to them and ask you to render a decision between two believers? It takes wisdom to do that. It takes God's wisdom to do that. The idea that God can't use another believer to grant to us wisdom and to show us how to work out a problem that's, that's just basically pride. I mean, we should be ashamed to even consider unbelievers in that loop of counsel. Because the Bible says that they don't have a place. They don't have a place at the table. And that's why 
Paul is so upset with him. He, he says he speaks this to your shame. He's not even, he's just appalled at the whole thing. Over in James chapter 3, verse 13 to 18, speaking of wisdom, this gives us a clear rendering of where it comes from. James 3, verse 3, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. So it tells us very clearly that this kind of wisdom that's demonic, unspiritual exists. Verse 16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. That's what was happening in the church of Corinth. Verse 17, but the wisdom from above is first, look at this, pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. It's going to be difficult for an unbelieving person to come up with that kind of wisdom, outside of the Spirit's power. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in the peace, in peace by those who make peace, he says there in the end. So he wants us to understand that there's no way that we should ever, ever go to court with another believer about anything. It's just wrong. Well, look at what he says in verse 5. He says, I say this to to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? Could Could it be possible? Are you saying that as gifted of a church as you are? Now, remember, this is a very gifted, spiritually gifted church. He says that in in chapter 1, verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus and in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you To the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful who called you into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And he begins to appeal to them based on all that. Why are there divisions among you? Why are you having all these moral issues? Why are you suing each other? You have to have some form of discernment. What Paul's saying is, I find it hard that the two of you can't just get together and talk this out in a spiritual way. Verse 6. He talks about the negative aspect of this, but brother goes to the law against brother. And you do that in in the secular world before unbelievers. See, we're called to be gracious. We're called to be merciful. We're called to be understanding. We're not called to be difficult and petty and argumentative and negative. It seems like the church is one of the only entities that that claims all this spirituality, and yet to the world they reveal their dirty laundry all the time. So sad. It's so sad. So as believers were more competent to settle these disputes, as believers were more capable, but thirdly, 
believers are more constrained to apply God's love and forgiveness. Look at what he says in verse 7. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. I mean, he is just blown away that they're doing this at all. The word kind of fault there is, it appears also in Romans 11.11. But it has the idea of, of just a, you know, this is just a horrible thing that's happening. It's a defeat. Something that's just completely wrong. He says, why not rather suffer the wrong? That's the, the possibility there. I mean, you know, the, the problem's clear, he points out. You have these lawsuits going on. But why not just suffer the wrong, he says. Why not just take it on the chin, move on. Think of the greater good, think of Christ, think of the unity of the church. Stop being so nitty-picky on these little things that don't matter. You're making such a big issue, you're going to court in the secular world, and you're causing them to sit back and go, oh, yeah, look at those two be They're Christians. They're suing each other. Let's watch this. Should never, ever happen. Someone say, well, what about, you know, what if I'm a, a Christian company and, you know, I have a disagreement with another Christian company? Then, you know, since it's a company, then I can sue them, right? No. It's still wrong. That's like saying, well, if you have one Christian brother and another Christian brother and they disagree and they go to court, it's wrong. But if you have three Christian brothers and another three that disagree, and they all go to court, then it's okay. No, it's still wrong. It still harms the body of Christ, the testimony for Christ. Taking a wrong there, to suffer a wrong, what he's, what he's saying there, it, it, it really means to hold back what should be given. To hold back what should be given. It's kind of merciful, being merciful in a way. In other words, it's better just to suck it up, take the wrong, and don't even talk about it. Just move on. You don't take them to court over it. But look at what they do. Verse 8, the decision they make. (laughs) But you yourselves wrong and defraud. Even your own brothers, he says. So he says, first of all, I can't believe this is happening at all. But now you're, you're at a point where you're doing it in a wrong way. You're doing it with a sense of defrauding that person because you're lusting after whatever they want. And by not ending the dispute and suffering whatever wrong is there, what do you do? You end up hurting others, hurting the testimony of Christ, hurting even the body of Christ. And he just says, it's completely wrong, any way you look at it. And he he draws his conclusion here in verses 9 through 11. Quickly, he just says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do you know the people you're going before these judges, these secular judges that are not going to be in heaven? You're asking them to have an input in your life? They're not going to inherit the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. He says, even if they make the right decision, even if they side with you, he says, don't be deceived, neither sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexualities, nor thieves, nor the greedy. See how he's kind of dialing in on what's the real motivation? What do they have going on between the two of them? Nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And I can see the Corinthians sitting there before Paul and saying, well, we don't do that, lying through their teeth because they were. (laughs) But they're deceived but their chefs filled up with pride. And so Paul throws that last verse in there. 
Not just for them, but also for us. Because we can look at that list and go, well, I don't do this. I don't, well, I may do that or I may do this. But I don't do a major majority of those things. I'm, I'm inherently pretty good before God's eyes. No, you're not. None of us are. The Bible clearly says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Verse 11, he says, and such were some of you. Lest your heads get a little too big to walk out of the door. And then he says, but, I love the buts in Scripture, but you were what? Washed. You were washed. When do you wash something? When it's dirty. Pennsylvania, we say wash. That's why I was struggling with my pronunciation there. We say wash, you folks say wash. Okay, whatever. But you were washed, you were what? Sanctified. What's that word? That word means you were set apart. You were set apart unto God. You were justified. We used to sing a song once in a while called Justified, and part of the song says, just as if I'd never sinned. You were justified before God. Even though you're a filthy, rotten sinner just like I am, God looked down on you and he granted to you repentance and you came to Christ and at that moment, you were set apart. You were saved. You were transformed. You were, what, justified. You were declared righteous in God's presence even though you aren't. Notice it says, you were justified in your name. Is that what it says? Nope. It says you were justified in whose name? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he's the one that hung on the cross. He was the perfect sacrifice. He's the only one that could justify anybody. Sometimes as Christians, we feel justified. You know, we feel a little justified about something. It's wrong. He says, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And he's trying to draw them back to their spiritual foundation. He's trying to bring them back to, remember what I told you at the beginning of the book. I'm thankful for who you are in Christ, but man, you're, you're getting off the wrong road here. Sometimes as Christians, we need to be drawn back to that narrow way. Because we tend to wander over to the Broadway now and then. We, this is a little more relaxed. This is, this is pretty good. You know, I can miss one or two, three, four Sundays. Eh, that's, that's okay. God's grace. No, it's not. If you're not here as part of this church on a Sunday morning, the body's incomplete. Do you understand? See, you, you fail to understand how integral we are as part of the body of Christ. It's so important to understand that, and that's what Paul is trying to tell them. That you're, you're in Christ. You don't need to wander outside and get advice from people who are unrighteous, who walk in darkness, who don't have any wisdom. Thank God that he washed us. Thank God that we're sanctified. Thank God that we're justified. Thank God that we're forgiven through the blood of Christ. Without it, we would have no hope other than to stand before God completely condemned to eternity in hell forever. That's not something we wish on anyone. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, thank you that the Apostle Paul is really speaking out of a heart of care, of concern, not just for their physical well-doing, but their spiritual well-doing. He is blown away at how far that they have come since he's left them as their pastor. I mean, he planted this church. He spent some 18 months with them, discipling them and growing them. And then Apollos came, who was a wonderful teacher, and taught them more. And yet they were still 
seem to be falling away. Attracted to that broad path. Lord, sometimes as Christians we we forget that narrow, narrow, restrictive is the way to life. That our Christian lives shouldn't just be a bowl of cherries and a bunch of fun. We're called to suffer for you. We're called to live lives of sacrifice for you. We're called to respect the differences that there may be among us and look to the greater good of unity within the body of Christ. And it's so sad when that doesn't happen. I mean, Lord, how blessed we are to have a building that we can meet in every week. How blessed we are to have a sound system and lights and music and food. Thank you for the food, Lord. Father, we're thankful for all these things. But Lord, sometimes it just seems like we're going through the motions. Seems like we're just showing up, punching the ticket. Yep, went to church today. That's indicative of a heart that's growing cold. I would even dare to say if you can miss a Sunday and it doesn't bother you, something wrong. Something wrong. We should be eager to join together with the body of Christ around the word of God and be taught and be edified and be built up and to pray together and to fellowship with each other. That's all we have. Everything else is going away. Help us to be reminded of that. Help us to be gracious with one another. Merciful, kind. Father, I pray today if there's anyone here who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, that maybe today would be the day that you would call them into your kingdom. Lord, you give us the facts. We understand we're not righteous in our own eyes. We've all sinned. We've fallen short of your glory. We need someone who is completely righteous, that being Christ, who died on a cross, who's able to forgive our sins. But it doesn't happen automatically. The Bible said we have to come to Christ. We have to turn from our sins and turn to the Savior. Now granted, he enables us to do that, but we still have to do it. So I pray this morning, if there's any here who is yet to do that, to turn to Christ, to express to Christ their need to be forgiven, I pray that you would complete that transaction even today as we speak make it very real to those individuals that they need to cry out to christ be merciful lord to me a sinner save me from my sin i don't want to be on the broad path anymore i want to know that one day i will inherit the kingdom of god and the kingdom of heaven we thank you and we praise you in jesus precious name amen Let's...